This is Steve Baker and I'm James Newcomb, and we are posting this recording on our respective podcasts. Steve, welcome to my show, and I accept your gracious welcome to your show. Hey, thank you. And well, <laughs> by all means, welcome to my world. And actually, we're on opposite sides of the world right now. That's right. We're in each other's worlds ideologically. We're on other sides of the geographic world, planet Earth. But uh, Steve and I have a bit in common. We're both trumpet players, have been for many years, and we actually shared the stage a few times. I, I guess it was probably about, I don't know, four or five months. The Bull City Syndicate in Raleigh, North Carolina, Raleigh-Durham area. Was it that short? I was trying to remember how long it was uh, before we got on the I think the it line. was just a few months because I moved to Virginia Beach in May of 18, and I think I left the band right before that. It, yeah. it wasn't long. It was maybe six months at the most. Okay. Yeah. I, I know that it was all too short. Steve is a dynamic performer, terrific trumpet player, great singer, just a terrific stage presence. And just to talk music before we talk about COVID and the effect on music and the effect on other things, it was, yeah. just a, it was just a treat to share the stage with you. And I learned a lot about just being a showman and just being a, seeing the value of entertainment and knowing how to carry a crowd. And I've actually, if I were to really examine my own music or my podcasting career, I would say that I've learned a lot or I've applied a lot of the things that I learned from you wow. leading the band there in Raleigh and Durham. When you were with us and man, I don't even remember what, whether we went through an audition process or if I just took you on the strength of the fact that your history and playing in the army and such like that. But I remember that you seemed to have more comfort in a classical setting as a player. And then, of course, Bull City Syndicate, because we're a horn band. We're not a band with horns. We're a horn band. So we got the horns. And so it's not like our horn players can hide on the back riser somewhere behind the front line of singers. I mean, we have the horns on the front line. And it was like, uh-oh, James is <laughs> right, maybe outside of his comfort zone. It was definitely outside my comfort zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I do but I made the best of it, and I had a good time. Yeah, yeah you played great. I had my moments. So enough pleasantness, enough things that make the world a better place. Let's talk about, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. let's talk about COVID. I know that you, because like you made your living performing and then all of a sudden March of 2020 comes and all of a sudden the gigs just completely dry up and there's no hope of any live gig for the foreseeable future. And of course it was we're told it's going to be two weeks and then two weeks turns into two months. And now here we are a year and two months later, and there might be something that resembles a light at the end of the tunnel, but we still don't know like that light kind of changes and it's in its brightness. We, we just don't know when exactly things are going to get back to quote normal. So I, I would just like to know what was that like for you? And it, yeah, was it, to be perfectly honest with you, when the whole thing started happening at the very beginning of, it was obviously we, we were hearing about it in January and February. And then when we got to the first of March, it, the, the talks of shutdowns, lockdowns, flattening the curve, all those things, and all the things that were necessary in order to do that began to you know, hit our radar screen. I, I obviously began to think about that in terms of the, the, the gigs that we had on the books. And then obviously the secondary thing I'm going to think about is the earnings that I derived from those performance opportunities. So 
it was a bit amusing at first when the first couple of weeks of lockdowns happened and we did in fact have to cancel some gigs. It was uncomfortable and we had to move. We either re, we had to reschedule, we had to you know postpone. And so we, with some of the clients, we started looking at, at the future option, future dates on the calendar. That was just something we had to do. It, it wasn't pleasant. It wasn't fun, but it was just a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months then. And then as when we got into the couple of months, and as you can imagine, because the type of band that particularly that Bull City Syndicate is uh, being a, you know, private event variety act, you know, we do a lot of corporate events. We do a lot of weddings. We do a lot of those types of events. All of a sudden now those venues are themselves just shutting down and there is no hope of doing anything during that, those actual lockdown time periods. So now everybody's moving scheduling. So there's everybody's scrambling the whole industry, the whole private event industry is, is scrambling. So what's happening now is obviously the people that have hired venues are either, if they're still wanting to try and go on, some people actually move their events across state lines. They did that because the state's in, enacted their lockdowns at different periods. So they would move their event and their date across a state line. And then all of a sudden that state would lock down and boom, then we had to move it again. So all of a sudden the calendar, and because I not only, you know, perform in my bands, I manage the bands and I handle the, the bookings and the calendars. And so it became a nightmare, especially as it extended out. And then all of a sudden you start running into clients that can't postpone, they can't reschedule or they've done you have multiple clients rescheduling on the same date. So then all of a sudden you just lose, you lose the, the opportunities and this is money lost. This is money that's not coming back. And then the next thing that happens is you get into the point to the point where, because we take security deposits on these, then you have clients asking for money back. So now not only are you not making Lord. money, but you've got to start giving money back. And, mm. and as you can imagine, when you are, in the music business full time, you like an insurance agent, you're living off of those advanced funds. You know how, how many rescheduled dates you're going to have, or how many refunds you're going to have to do under the course of a normal year. But when you mm -hmm. get plopped into COVID lockdowns and mm -hmm. those, those demands for a return of, of security deposits happen over a 12, 14 month period, then you're, you're talking bankruptcy. So myself being a guy with, I have three bands of my own that, you know, that I perform in and those are my bands and those bands had all three of them had bookings all the way into from March of 2020, all the way deep into this year, 2021. And so we had to start seriously looking about at whether we were going to file bankruptcy in order to just keep our stuff or, or find some other method to, to get by with it. And, and I may be giving something away here to some other guys, which is fine if I can help somebody out with this statement. But here's what I finally had to start telling my clients. I finally started telling them, said, look, here's the bottom line. We're at the point right now that if I get one single letter from the attorney of a client demanding a refund of a security deposit, I'm filing bankruptcy the next day. So you're not going to get your money back. On the other hand, if you'll just work with me, when this thing comes back to life and we're allowed to all gather together again in large groups, we're going to give you the best party you ever had. 
And that mm -hmm. actually happened last week. So we actually had an event. Now you remember my other band, Captain and the Keels, the yacht rock yeah. band. Cause yeah. you, you did some shows with us with Captain and the Keels too, didn't you? Yeah. 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 So, so anyway, so we had that exact circumstance. So the guy had booked us in May of 2020 for his wife's 50th birthday party in Virginia beach, right on the beach, big elaborate soiree for his wife's 50th birthday party. And what ended up happening was, is after we tried to move it a few weeks into the future, and then the lockdowns extended to over a year. And he came back to me and he asked me for a refund of his security deposit. And I had to have that exact conversation with him. And, I, and I, his name's Chris. And I said, Chris, here's the bottom line. And I said, the first term, you know, the first letter I get from a client's attorneys demanding the refund of the deposit, I'm filing bankruptcy the next day. I said, I can't, I just can't do this. And I said, but on the other hand, if you will hang with me, when our turn rolls around and we're legally allowed to all gather together again and throw that party for your wife. It may not be her on her 50th birthday. It may be her 51st or 52nd. I don't know. We're going to give you one hell of a party. And I'm telling you, dude, man, we got out there and we did the show uh, last weekend. Actually, it was last weekend. He went online and he posted the most glowing five-star reviews. Actually said he wished he could give us 10 out of 10 stars. And we, we laid it down and they, of course, those people were ready to party too. So you know, they've been pent up oh, yeah. for a year as well. So it, it was an incredible event and he hung with us and they were very appreciative. I think that the worst thing about what you went through is just the uncertainty. One, because it's, it's one thing if, if you know that if you can plan on something, like something's going to happen in two months, you're going to be out of work. In, in two months, you're going to get back and you can plan on that. But then when it's two months comes and goes, and then still nothing is, has changed. And you're like, there's no end in sight. Like, when is this going to change? That had to have been excruciating. And as a professional who operates with integrity, it had to have been just demoralizing. That, that was the toughest part. As I said at the beginning of my rant a while ago, when they started talking about a couple of weeks, it was amusing. Yeah. I just sat on my front porch every day. I would light up a cigar. It was, it was in March. The weather was nice in North Carolina. It was comfortable to sit out there on the porch. And I just, I just sat out there and, and I wouldn't wait till five o'clock to pour myself a drink. I just took the two weeks and went, okay, I can deal with this. And then all of a sudden they started locking everything down and then telling us that they didn't know when it was going to open up. And then the governor was making his Tuesday afternoon press conferences and talking about extending it to the end of the extent. I remember when he extended it to June the 1st and I was horrified mm. because particularly when you get into a wedding season for a band, Bull City Syndicate, all of a sudden, March, April, May, June, those are the mm. biggest wedding months of the year apart from October. And I'm going, Oh, this is not good. And so now I'm no longer sitting on my front porch, enjoying myself. I'm having to sit there with my laptop and scrambling, reorganizing, postponing, rearranging dates, trying to figure out how to move this thing to that thing and, and dealing with client calls and refund requests. And all of a sudden it became a nightmare very quickly. And then, and then all of a sudden they get extended through the entire summer. So that knocks out everything that I'm doing. I, I, the festival season is knocked out. And 
you don't know this, but since you were in the band, I started my third act, which was a third band, which is the American Bowie experience. We're actually doing, using the same musicians, same lineups. We do a, a tribute to David Bowie. And so all of a sudden I'm having to deal with those cancellations, which those of course, mostly in public venues, big music halls and that sort of thing, theaters, that, tour, that type of uh, venue. Those venues don't even know when they're coming back. They've shuttered their doors. They're just locked down. And so when we're contacting them, trying to even reschedule dates, they're like, no, we, we can't even put anything on the books right now. We have no idea. Mm. So then all of a sudden life looked like, uh-oh, do I even have a job anymore? And at my age? Mm. <laughs> yeah. That's scary, man. Yeah, it was. It, it, I had, it took me a while because I was so busy with the uh, logistics of dealing with the problem that it wasn't until probably in October or November of last year that I did it psychologically finally get to me. And I went into, I went into some dark places in my head. It was hard. And I, believe I, you. And, 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 and fortunately I had, I have a really close, in fact, it's the, the, the guy that I'm co-authoring a, a book about this whole experience with that, man, we leaned on each other. Both of us had a hard time. He and myself are both writers on the side of our businesses and his, one of his primary businesses also inter intersects with the entertainment and music business. He actually provides the staffing for the major music venues in Raleigh, the PSC arena, the Walnut Creek, the big outdoor shed, the red hat amphitheater, all that. So he provides all the staffing for those. Well, of course that entire segment of his business was wiped out as well. There are no events at all, zero. So both of us were going through a pretty, pretty big hit at the same time. And if we had not had each other to lean on, I don't know where it would have gone. There are no words. And I want to get in, uh, into your book a little bit because yeah. obviously it's intended to provoke a reaction. Yes, it is. <laughs> Depending on your views of the lockdowns and the reaction or the government reaction to the, the COVID, you're either going to love Steve for writing it or you're going you're gonna to hate Steve. You're going to loathe him and call Mark Zuckerberg and say, hey, man, we got to keep an eye on this guy. Right. Well, but, that's, um, Zuckerberg already knows who I am. <laughs> he's on, you're on his speed dial, aren't I've you? I've taken many shots at him directly. I want to get your thoughts on this book because you obviously take issue with, and we, we discussed this before we quasi began this interview, COVID is, it's obviously real. The COVID, it's not like COVID is fake, but perhaps maybe the reactions have been overblown or maybe it's just been taken out of context or just give a little clarity on what, uh, on how you see the, the reactions have been to the pandemic. It's not very hard to understand that I took this thing personally very early on. This felt like an attack against me, not the virus, but the government reaction to the virus felt like an attack against me. Now you have to understand maybe a little bit more background about me. I've been, you know, a hobbyist political writer for 20 years and had never monetized that, but I had gained a following tens of thousands of people over the last, you know, several years, particularly into the, once we entered the MySpace and Facebook generation of social media, it's something that I do every day, apart from my 
having to keep my chops up for trumpet and a book and manage three bands and that sort of thing. When this whole COVID thing started, the news started breaking back last January, obviously my radar, you know, is up and my antennas are, you know, up and finely tuned. And then they became much more finely tuned as I realized that this just might begin to affect me personally. The frustrating part about this was not, and believe me, when it comes to the conspiracy side of things, I should probably tell all of our listeners right now, because you're right. We've got a listeners on every, from every possible political perspective and predisposition. And we have people listening to us that have very passionate feelings about this disease itself, both how they personally have responded to it. And then also how government has dictated response to it bureaucratically. So let's just get this on the table. First of all, yes, I believe the disease is real. I believe that the disease is deadly. No questions about it. If I'm going to jump forward now 12 months and talk about the vaccine very quickly, I believe that the vaccines work. I'm not an anti-vaxxer. I don't believe in mandatory vaccines, but I also don't believe in mandatory lockdowns. So we're going back now to the beginning of this thing to answer your, your, your question, how the government dealt with it. Now, as a writer myself and also somebody who does two things, I am an obsessive reader. Anybody that knows me knows that I can't have multiple media sources going at the same time. And I never stop reading all the time, even when I'm practicing my trumpet. And I'm not joking. When I'm practicing my trumpet, there's some sort of visual media going at the same time. And then I will take my breaks and I'm re- and I'm reading in between. You play an ARP and study, you, you take your break and you read. <laughs> That's what I do. The next thing that happened was I started doing the math because I'm actually pretty good at math as well. So I started doing the math and I realized that no later than mid-April, there was enough data pouring forth from eight. We're not talking about some charlatan doctor on a street corner. We're talking about Stanford University. We're talking about UCLA, University of Stockholm. They were already releasing the studies from worldwide of exactly who this disease was hitting the hardest and who it wasn't hitting. And it became very apparent to me early on that the lockdowns of an entire world or an entire state or an entire city were unnecessary is that what the government response needed to be was a more focused protection of those at risk. And that's what the strategy should have been built upon. Had that happened, I wouldn't have been out of work for the last 14 months. So that's the basis of what we're starting with from the perspective of two guys who are in the entertainment business, because we hear all about the restaurants and bars being shut down. Nobody was hurt worse than the entertainment business. We were shut out. We couldn't do takeout service. We tried to do some experimental things. We did some drive-in shows. Well, we did a series of drive-in movie theater shows. Seriously, all three of my bands played on a drive in movie theater and people would pull up in their cars. It's not what people want to do when they go to a concert. They want to, they want to press flesh. They want to get sweaty and they want to dance. They want to jump around and, and enjoy the event with you. That's the reason for live music is enjoying it with the person standing right next to you and the energy from a crowd. And you don't get that sitting in your car with the windows up and the band is way off in the distance on, on a stage in front of a drive-in movie screen. 
six car lengths apart. And that was the other thing. They distanced the cars. It's amazing, isn't it? If you haven't figured out, Steve and I are on the same page as far as lockdowns. We disapprove for differing reasons. Now, I, I did not have my business, if anything, my business picked up with the lockdowns because people like you decided I can't do, I can't do this with my business. I'm going to pick up podcasting. And so I was one of the people fortunate enough to be in that business. And so it didn't affect me in that way personally. And I want to be careful because it's, you don't want to have a flippant attitude regarding COVID. But at the same time, I've noticed, my observation is that people have just put this virus on a pedestal. So for some, it has become a, a religious act. It's a sacrament now. The various, yeah, the various aspects of whether it's social distancing, whether it's mm -hmm. supporting your local takeout service, it's become a sacrament. You're not going up and getting the body of Christ and the blood of Christ. You're going up and you're partaking in your sacrament at the drive through window. With your face mask and being right. six feet apart from people. Right, right, right. All of those. And, all I've, I, and I've encountered pastors who I was friends with who chided me because I didn't have what he thought was an appropriate attitude regarding COVID. And he literally equated my attitude regarding COVID. And he said that basically I wasn't right with God because I didn't have the right attitude. I deal with that in my own political circles as well, because I'm a political libertarian. I'm, I'm not a member of the, the libertarian party here in the United States, but I am, I'm philosophically, spiritually, and politically a libertarian. And so I, I begin there. And and it's an interesting place to be because in libertarian philosophy, there's a thing called the non-aggression principle, the NAP. And so in, with the non-aggression principle, you have half of the libertarians saying, because of NAP, we need to protect other people. We need to not violate their space. We need to be sure that we protect, our, protect them by covering ourselves up and wearing the space suits and all that kind of stuff when we go into public or not going into public at all. And not invade their and invade their space. And then you have the other half of the libertarians are completely split. It is divided right down the middle. So there are people like me who are going, wait a minute, I'm not going to give up individual liberty over a disease that as an average across all age groups and mm -hmm. all health conditions only kills 0.2% of the population. You're asking 99.8% of the world's population to change their behavior for the protection of 0.2. Now, does that make the 99.8 selfish? No, it means that we're, we're looking at it wrong. And this is where my problem was from the beginning. It's in the administration. It's in the bureaucratic handling of this problem. We should have come up with quickly because we knew the data and we knew who was most at risk very early in this crisis. And rather than total, look at Canada, Canada, just across the border, as we're opening up down here, our, our governor in North Carolina lifted all lockdowns two weeks ago. Boom. Capacity restrictions are over. Statewide manda, uh, mask mandate is over, finally. So after 14 months, he lifts all, the, all those restrictions. But in Canada, just across the border, they're still arresting people for walking down the street without a mask on. Literally 
giving them $500 or $2,000, $2,500 fines and arresting pastors for trying to keep their churches open. It's amazing, you know, the, the, what, what's happening all over the world. And we know beyond any shadow of a doubt who is at risk and who is not at risk and are certainly at minimal risk is the best way to say it. So minimally at risk that we should be allowed as sovereign individuals to make the decision for ourselves, weigh our individual risk, and then meet and gather with other people who have done the same thing. We don't need a nanny state hanging over us. And if we make a bad bet, that's on us. It's no more complicated than that. I'm 61 years old. All right. You don't even know this. I've lost 60 pounds since you played with us in the van. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in, and I did all of this before COVID I actually gained a little bit back because of COVID. <laughs> but the point being is that I am, I'm healthy. I don't have any comorbidities. I don't have any pre-morbidities. I don't have any other health conditions. I'm very lucky in that regard. I don't have any known problems. I don't have high blood pressure. I don't have type two diabetes. I don't have a lot of things associated with being 60 years old. So I've accepted and weighed those risks. I've looked at the data and at my age group across all health uh, risks. My age group, you know what the survivability rate is at 60 years old? It's 99.5%. And that's including everybody at risk. That's, that's including everybody with all those other maladies and pre-morbidities and that sort of thing. It's 99.5% survivability. I'm even higher because of my health condition, because I'm in good shape and because I'm not morbidly obese and because I don't have type two diabetes and high blood pressure and blah, 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 history of heart disease, history of this, history of that. Because of that, my risk factor, I'm in the 99.99% survivability rate for somebody in my health condition. I've just done the research and done the math. So I'm not worried about me. Mm -hmm. Okay. So who do I need to worry about? I need to be worried about the people at risk. And so Governmental response, bureaucratic response should have been based on protecting those at risk peoples and those at risk groups and not locking me in my house for a year and taking my livelihood away from me. There's uh, so many repercussions that we're going to feel from this past 14, 15 months. I think we're going to feel the repercussions for years. The unintended consequences of these lockdowns are, are revealing themselves in many ways. In every city in the United States, crime is exploding. We are, we're up 250% in, in some cities, 75% in others, blah, 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 in violent crime rates. Suicide rates are up 100% among high school age students. The psychiatrists and psychologists are screaming bloody murder right now. They were screaming early on, look, we, our kids cannot handle this. We've got to do something else. Can we come up with a better strategy rather than wrapping their face up and, and gauze and keeping them from interacting with their friends. And the, the psychological devastation is, is rampant right now. And not to mention the economic devastation, because there's something like 40% of all small businesses in the United States are not coming back. They're done. They went under. Now, this is while Amazon and, you know, Apple and everybody else exploded. Anybody doing anything online went, went nuts. They uh, increased their wealth by multiples while people like me, we lost what we had. I want to go.
go on a slightly different track and I don't want to come across as not to be flippant or to take anything away from what you've said. We were talking a little bit before we hit record about resilience. And mm-hmm. we mentioned Beth Perutka, who was on the trumpet podcast a while back. And she's a great trumpet player. And she just had a horrible injury and she couldn't play anymore. And she just had this attitude, I'm going to fight back. Another fellow that I interviewed was Floris Onstvader, who in spite of the lockdowns, he just had an attitude of, I'm, I'm going to do what I can. And he did something. It wasn't ideal, but he did something. And I'm just being careful with how I say this, because these two individuals were fairly young when this happened. Yeah, Beth was probably in her maybe late 20s. Floris is, I don't think, 25, 26. And you're a bit older. I want to be careful how I say this. It may have taken you a bit longer to adjust or to accept the reality of what had happened. It's a fair thing. And and we can jump back to those who are actually interested in a little bit about music and a little bit about trumpet right now, because I've had to slay this trumpet dragon more than once in my lifetime. As I was really, very fortunate as a young trumpet player at 19 years old to be touring full-time and traveling all over the world playing. I quit school after a year and I was, you know, trumpet performance major, like many of us that, that didn't go into the military to do it because that was another option for me. But I went to school on, on a trumpet performance scholarship and then a year and a half into it, I was on the road playing full time. And then I had some, no other way to say it. I had to have some mouth work. It wasn't because of a, of an injury or a, a nerve damage or anything like that, like Beth's situation, but I did have to have some really extensive work done on my mouth for reasons that are very long and very complicated. I won't even get into it. It's a waste of time on that. So I lost my ability to play for in my mid twenties for three full years. And during that time, as you're talking about resiliency, I didn't get out of music. I actually got into the business of music at that time. I started promoting shows. I did over a thousand shows as a concert promoter over the next year. 10, 15 years as a result of that three years off from trumpet that got me into the music side, into the business side of music. I eventually started managing artists. I ended up managing uh, major label artists, I ended up managing artists that were you know, Grammy nominated. And, and I did tour management. I, I did shows, you know, everything from church basements to 15,000 seat arenas as a promoter, in addition to being a, an artist manager. So I took advantage of that time to stay in the business and learned another aspect of the business as apart from being trumpet. Well, after I was able to get the horn back on my face, good God, man, it was so miserable. It took forever to slay that dragon again. And, and I, I never really found my way back that first time. And so my music business requirements and time eventually took over. So by the time I was, by the time I was 30 years old, I put the horns in the closet. I did. I put them away for nine years. They were in the closet gathering dust. And then when I was 39 years old, I started dreaming about playing again. I was having, they weren't nightmares, but they were like, I would wake up with a, I would wake up with a cold and a cold sweat. There were guilt dreams. And in my dreams, man, I never played. I, I was incredible. I was, I really liked the way I played in my dreams. <laughs> okay. It was, I played in my dreams the way I always wished I could play. You know what I mean? 
I started having these guilt dreams. So I, one day I went and I got, I did, I got the horns out of the closet and I thought, okay, let's take them to the shop and get them cleaned up. So I took them in and, and I got them Kim cleaned and got everything adjusted and playing. I brought them home with all this intent to start practicing again. And for months, they just sat on my trumpet stands next to the music stand with some music on the stand that I wouldn't even look at. And I couldn't, I just couldn't find the motivation just wasn't there. And the primary reason why, and this is for those that don't understand the physicality of being a brass player, is that all of the signals that my brain would send, the body was incapable of responding to it. You know what I mean? Because of the muscle atrophy, all of the things involved with being a trumpet player. It, you just, it's not like getting on a bike. It's just not. And so the thought of getting back and like getting to this level that you were once at discouraged you from picking it up. Absolutely. Again? That's a great way of looking at it. The, the, right. the, re the reality and realization that I probably would never be and play at the level that I had previously played as a young man would never be there again was frustrating in and of itself. And then you add to it when you pick it up and put it to your face and go, Oh my God, you know how much work this is going to take. And now at 39, I've got two kids you know, I've got a mortgage, got a wife, I'm on the treadmill of life. I don't have five to eight hours a day to play like I did when I was in school. That's all I did. That's all I did. So that time allotment doesn't even work anymore. One day, I, I don't know what happened. It was like something, there was a flipped a switch in my brain. And I found the motivation and I started personally practicing about two hours. I found the time, the motivation, and I'm, and I'm 39 years old and I'm now I'm putting in two hours a day again, and I'm not getting anywhere really fast. So I found a guy in Texas. Some of your uh, listeners probably know him, Clint McLaughlin of your you know, pops, Clint McLaughlin. Have you heard of him? Yeah, I know the name. Yeah. He's yeah. In the Dallas area. And he was advertising himself on the internet as a comeback player guru, helping comeback players come back from disease, injury, that sort of thing. Cause he himself has been through tremendous disease issues that have prevented him for long stretches of time of being able to play at all. And he learned how to come back. So I thought, okay, what the heck? So I jumped on an air, I booked an appointment with him. I jumped on an airplane. It's most expensive series of lessons I've ever took because I had to pay for airplane rental car and hotel. And then I still had to pay the guy. So I started flying to Dallas from Raleigh, North Carolina for lessons for this guy. And then the very first lesson, he asked me what my goals were. And I said, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I'll be able to play in church again or something. I said, and I actually said these words, I don't think that I'll ever be the player that I once was. And he said, why do you think that? And, and I told him, I said, because I don't have that five to eight hours a day to practice like I did when I was 15, 16, you know, 17 years old. And he said, that's just because you didn't know what you were doing. And now, unlike a 19-year-old, I'm mature enough at this point to go, okay, 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 I'm all ears. All, right, I, I, all of my predispositions and preconceptions about being a trumpet player, I sat them aside and I said, okay. And he said to me, he said, I'm going to have you back where you were in six months if you do what I tell you to do. And he said, with a fraction amount of the amount of time, FaceTime on the trumpet that what you're spending before. I'm a blank slate. I said, okay, all right. 
I'll, I took notes uh, copiously from him and I am not kidding you when I tell you that I got my first paid trumpet gig exactly six months after my first lesson from him. And it was a road gig. We're not talking about a Sunday morning church thing, playing come to Jesus and whole notes. I, I, I got a road gig six months later and I was blown away by that. I did slay the dragon yet again. And then COVID comes around and man, you're right. This is 20 something years after that particular event that I just described. And my motivation is just lost. I went through a period over during the COVID lockdowns of exactly five months without putting the horn to my face. Just couldn't find it. It's a little bit dangerous because I know how to slay the dragon a little quicker now. <laughs> so I can be a little bit flippant about it sometimes. And that's not good either. And it wasn't for lack of time. Oh, no, not obviously not for lack of time. I'm sitting at home on my butt. That's a psychological thing. You just total psychological do it. thing. And interestingly, the thing that got the horn back on my face was I did, in fact, have an Easter gig. It was an Easter gig that I almost gave away. In fact, I gave away, a, I had a session gig, I had a studio session gig that because I hadn't had my horn on my face for weeks at this point, I actually gave it away and I made up a story about being, not being available. And, and so I made a recommendation for somebody else and I gave that gig away because I knew I couldn't do it. And then when the Easter gig rolled around a couple of weeks out, I started doing long tones and started working it out. Fortunately, it was not a difficult gig, but so I got through it. It was really tough for a long time to find that motivation. Yeah. I, I think five months is a little easier to come back than three years though. Or nine years. Yeah. <laughs> or, or nine years. Yeah. But it, it's not a, it's not a physical thing because I've gone through probably, I think the longest I've ever gone is maybe four months without mm -hmm. playing. And, but then when I started playing again, it, I just, I was motivated and I wanted to do it maybe a month before I was at full strength or something resembling full strength. But, and I, it, did you ever feel like you're a victim? That's a great question. And I could really tangent on that for a long time. And I know we don't have the time to do that, but because I'm philosophically an anti-victimhood guy, I, I don't believe in and the, the day, the moment, the time that you recognize that you are in fact a victim, then it's like admitting that you're an alcoholic. Okay. It's time to do something about it. You know what I mean? All right. Okay. Yeah. So you're a victim. Now, what are you going to do about it? And, and so essentially that's what happened to me. I did find myself becoming angry, becoming depressed. I, and I'm not a depressed person. I don't, I'm not inclined to depression. I know some people are. And I'm generally a pretty up person. I'm generally a pretty positive person. I'm a generally a pretty even kill person. But over the first few months of that lockdown, as I said, the first few weeks, it was hard and I was busy dealing with it. I was angry. I was really angry, but I had a lot of work to do, deal with the, the managerial complexity of running three bands and dealing with the, the rescheduling, the calendar issues. And then when we hit the fall of 2020, and this thing looked like it was never going to go away. And we're mm. entering now the, the winter flu season, which I expected to be all the spikes and the surge and everything else like that. I'm, I, I, okay, now I'm hitting the dark places. 
And that's where, when we hit that, that I made the decision at that point to repurpose myself and re-engineer myself yet again at 60 years of age and move my commentary and my political analysis and my writing career, which of course now in modern terms also has to usually include podcasting as well, but to move that as into the first seat of my daily responsibilities and move music to the second. Now that was hard because music has been my life since I was a kid, literally a child. Either you know, playing it, or being involved in management or the business side of it. Yeah. It, yeah, exactly. That, that has been, and sometimes that was in the church. Sometimes it was inside of the church. Sometimes it was as a manager or a concert promoter, sometimes as a performer, a musician, a singer, whatever. It's all across, you know, all spectrums of the entertainment business and from a musical standpoint. But I decided to move that to the second chair. And I made that decision back in October and November of last year. And that was specifically to bring me out of the, that brought me out of the dark place. Yeah. Because you, yeah. you felt useful. <sighs> I, I felt, yeah, I felt I had a purpose. Actually, to be honest with you, it, it feels like a calling now. I don't mean it from a point of hubris or narcissism. It, I think I have something to say as a result of what I've experienced through this whole thing. And you have credibility because it's one thing for me, my business was okay. And I had a, a little bit of hurt feelings because of something someone said to me, get over that, James. But you, <laughs> I mean, you like had your entire livelihood taken away from you because of these lockdowns. And so I'm more inclined to listen to you and say that these were flawed in their, the, the why, or why are they doing this? It's flawed. I'm more likely to listen to you because you were directly affected. You literally had your entire livelihood taken away and were thrown into a, a state of desperation. Because I have thousands of interactions per day on, online. When I say I have, I can't possibly interact with thousands of people per day, but on my writings and my podcasts and, and my, the posts on social media, I, I get thousands of responses and interactions per day every day. And I have had people attack me in the same way that they, what you said before there, I've, I've had people just tell me, Hey, get over it, get over it, mm. go find something, yeah. go get a job, go drive an Uber, go, go get a job at the Amazon warehouse for $16 an hour or whatever. I mean, I've, I've had people and, and they weren't being motivating. They weren't being motivational when they said those things to me. They weren't trying to help. They we're blasting me for writing about the effects of the cause and effects of lockdowns and the, the unintended consequences and, and just being an analyst and, and analyzing not just my own life and my own circumstances, but analyzing it on a, on a macro level and a worldwide level. And, and because I've spent an obsessive amount of time doing that, as I said, because I took it personally and I'm writing a book about it. So I've spent a lot of time on this. And so I've had people attack me for just moaning and complaining about it, even on a logical and an intellectual level. but yeah, I, I can tell the difference between when somebody is motivating you to good works and motivating you to get out of your dark place and when they're just being critical. Now that you've been through this, this experience and you've gone through this dark place and thank God you've found this calling with writing politically, how do you think that, well, let me ask you this, how have other people that you've interacted with say the, the other members of the Bull City Syndicate, for example, yeah. whose names I can't remember. Forgive me if you're listening. No, I'm sorry. 
<laughs> I like you guys. I just can't remember your names. It's been a while. But how, in, in your interactions with other people, how have other people uh, reacted or adjusted their lives? Have they found different callings as a result of these lockdowns? Interestingly, in Bull City Syndicate particularly, only about half of the guys make their income full-time off of music. And some of those guys are teachers. They were able, remember we talked about restaurants could start doing curbside service and takeout and, and that sort of thing. The teaching business basically became a curbside service takeout business. You could do it online. You could Skype, you could Zoom. You, those guys, certainly there was a loss of income, but of the guys that I know personally that are in my band or that I associate closely with who do in fact make the primary or, or the, the, the most of their money comes from teaching. They adapted very quickly. And then with the online lessons and because you know, the parents wanted their children to remain engaged. So the parents were motivated to keep those. So yeah, there was a dip and they maybe lost anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30% of their income, but they didn't lose all of it. Then like, for instance, if you remember Randy, our bass player in Bull City Syndicate, Randy's a virtuoso at everything. He actually plays keyboards in our, in our David Bowie band. So he not only teaches, but he also, his primary business is he's one of the top piano tuners there in the Research Triangle area, the Raleigh-Durham area. For instance, he has the account on, he, he tunes all of, you know, Duke University's pianos, <laughs> everything all over the whole camp. So he's got a pretty good, and that didn't go away. He was still tuning piano. So he, he did fine. And then Danny, our, our lead vocalist, our, our female lead vocalist, she's a church musician, staff salaried church musician. So that didn't go away. And then of course, Steven, our guitar player, he's a, he owns a learning center. Now he, he had to adapt because all of with his learning center with multiple classrooms and that sort of thing, he had teachers that couldn't come in. Well, obviously they weren't allowed to at the beginning. And so everybody was switching to Skype and Zoom lessons. And then when, once they started coming in, it was very difficult because they're having to come in with masks and some parents didn't want to take that risk. Others were totally cool with it and had no, had no issues with it. But so he went through a dip, but yeah, he came through it pretty well. So it was different experience for everybody. People like myself who 100% of their income is derived from live performances. We had another level of, of right. Well, that kind of leads me to, and we're running short on time here, but something that I always try to ask my guests and for my listeners is thinking of other ways to diversify or not be completely dependent, like a hundred percent dependent on performing, thinking of the musicpreneur, thinking of an entrepreneur. I was just wondering if you, in, in your experience, if you have taken away any lessons that you might share with others as to maybe having a, a career where you're a hundred percent dependent on one thing, maybe yeah. that's not the best, the wisest career move. I think that can be said of anybody though. If you're a 30 year career man at IBM and that's where you've derived a hundred percent of your income, are you any different than I am for being a music musician for 40 years? Exactly. Is it really that much different? Because for those of us who live that self-employed, I've been self-employed for over 40 years. When my last W-2 wage earner job was? Burger King? 
my senior year of high school, working for the local newspaper in my hometown. That was my last W-2 wage earner job was my senior year in high school. I've been self-employed my entire life. Now I've had contracts, you know, contract jobs. I've had 1099 jobs that were extended and some of them even went years, but, but I've never, that was my last W-2 wage earner job. And so the point being is that society definitely looks at those of us who are entrepreneurs and who do operate self-employed hundred percent, a little bit different than the guys that take the nine to five safe route. So I definitely cannot say that I took a safe route because as you, being a live musician, you're, you're trolling yeah. bucks every day. You're looking you to be a shark. You got to go out there and you've got to make it happen for yourself. There's other aspects and there's other things that I might have wished I had done. I could have, after my time on the road, when I was younger and I came back and I needed to have surgery, instead of going into concert promotions, I could have gone back to school, got my education degree. I could have become a music educator. And then I would have had a job and I would have had a government job where I didn't have to worry about being let go. And in fact, where I could have continued to draw my paycheck during COVID lockdowns as an educator. I didn't go that route. I didn't make that choice 30 something years, 35 years ago. I didn't make that choice, but this has never happened in the history of the world. It's kind of hard to plan for, but yeah, diversification, definitely. So the one thing that I wish I had done, and you and I even talked about it back years ago, because I knew that you were doing the podcast thing then. And I was thinking about diversifying and expanding my writing universe. And you were trying to encourage me to get into the blogging and podcasting world. And I had not jumped over to that yet, which meant I could have been ahead of this curve in monetizing this aspect of my life three or four years ago. And I did not do that. I wish I had, but we're making those moves now, obviously. And I'm definitely not being critical. I'm not one of those saying that you should have gotten the job at Amazon. With all <laughs> due respect, I'm at the point of asking that was because I've heard so many people say that this lockdown and, and, and say what you will about it. We all have our own opinions and how we feel about the, the government's response to it, but it really happened. It was real. And just like that, we yeah. found out that a governor of a state can, with a stroke of a pen, end your livelihood just like that. Yeah. And the big lesson is you have to be prepared. You can't just say, I've got my ducks in a row in this one thing and I'm set. And, and you said something right there. I, I just want to throw it out to all of the, the listeners. And that is this, regardless of your political preference, regardless right. of your predisposition, regardless of what letter you wear after your name, R, D, L, whatever, doesn't matter. Do you really want one person? Exactly. Having the power to make those types of decisions over millions of people's lives with the stroke of a single pen. Because that's exactly what we witnessed in the last year. We witnessed people take that power and use it to destroy livelihoods, end people's life savings. Because that's what I was living. That's what do you think? I, I wouldn't have survived if, if I did not have something set aside. It doesn't take long to burn through that when you have the expenses of a business. When you have, it's not just your personal living expenses. The cost of my business completely sitting on the sideline with the vans and the trailers and everything else parked, burning no fuel, my business 
burn rate is $2,000 a month just to keep it alive on life support. That's, and that's with no income coming in. And that's before we even get to my personal expenses. So the burn rate was pretty fast, pretty hard, pretty high. And I'm, I'm not nearly in a position where somebody had much larger enterprises that were shut down and were burnt, their burn rates are 10,000 know, or hundreds of thousands of dollars a month. We, we were, our intention was not to be a bitch session and we're not, <laughs> that wasn't, that's not why we got on the call. It was just to complain, but there are, there are things that need to be said and we all have, we're entitled to our opinions. Yeah. And that's why I have a podcast is so that I can say what I know to be true without worrying about whether I'm going to be deplatformed or violate some community standards that were set by a bunch of 20 year olds who just graduated Dartmouth and, <laughs> or get fact checked by, on a, yeah, you know, yeah, you had some gossip columnist. In- the, the, the worst thing that, and I, and I have been dinged so many times over the last 12 months by Facebook and you know, you know, other social media sites, not for posting false information, but I got fact-checked for commenting and actually going through a, a, a detailed technological commentary over an NIH peer-reviewed published study. Not even talk, I'm not even going to mention what the study was about. Okay. Let's just say it's one of the more controversial aspects of the whole COVID right. thing. But having said that, they didn't ding me for my commentary. They dinged me for something that was in the study that the researchers themselves had theorized or come to a conclusion about. And they picked, they cherry picked one little thing out of the entire study and labeled it as partially false. And then put that big, you know, warning label over the top of my, my post. So anybody, Oh, he's posting partially false stuff. No, my commentary was just about the study itself. They fact-checked the study itself. So anyway, so Facebook has the mechanisms for you going in and, and you can challenge, you can ask for an appeal. And so I started through the, the appeal process. And during that process, they realized, they revealed to you who the actual fact-checking agency is, but also the fact-checker personally who it is. <laughs> so the lady, the journalist who fact-checked a peer-reviewed scientific paper published on the NIH, the National Institutes for Health. This is the agency that writes Dr. Fauci's paycheck. This is a study they posted. The fact checker was, and I'm not joking, a Hollywood gossip columnist. I kid you not. When I read that, I lost my mind and I went out, the, I went after them with both barrels blazing. I created a podcast, a blog out of it. I screen, I did all, I did the screenshots. I did the links. It was a very detailed, both barrels. I went after Facebook. I went after the fact checking agency. So you know what they did because I went after them. They came back and they, they put me in Facebook jail. I got, of course, in case you're wondering. We're actually setting the stage for part two of, mm. our, of our interview. I don't know when that's going to happen, but we're going to leave people on a cliffhanger here because, <laughs> All right. because I'm, 
we could talk for hours about, yeah. about this, but sadly, we are out of time. We have to sadly part ways for now. But if, uh, if the consumer demand is high enough, we should get together and do a part two and talk more about such things that concern us. Let's see what everybody responds to the most, and then we'll do a little Q&A. Yeah. So, okay, so is it, how do we find you on the web? Is it Pragmatic Constitutionalist? The website is thepragmaticconstitutionalist.com. Thepragmaticconstitutionalist.com. And then our new home for our, our content creator funding site is Dave Rubin's Locals platform that he just built a couple of years ago. And that is thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. So just got to stick locals in between two dots before you get to a com. So thepragmaticconstitutionalist.locals.com. And then of course, we're on Facebook, MeWe, Parler, Gab, YouTube. And then our podcast is on every major platform site from Apple to Spotify to blah, blah, blah. blah nice. Blah, blah. Nice. If you don't know how to spell constitutionalist, just go to go.com and just type in the way it sounds and it'll spell it for you. It'll fix it for you. <laughs> and of course, I'm James Newcomb. You can find me at jamesnewcombontrumpet.com and the business that hosts our podcasts and our podcast producing service is committedmedia.org. Just to introduce myself and tell people where we can, they can find us on the web. So Steve, this has been a real pleasure. And yep. I, I enjoyed listening to your story. It was a victorious story in many ways because you have gone through a lot of adversity in the last year. And I really admire your tenacity and your uh, resilience. It didn't come easily and it didn't come quickly, but it did come because you have uh, the right attitude and the right spirit. And my hat is off to you. Thank you. It was great catching up with you, James, even though you're on the other side of the world from me right now. <laughs> what a time to live, huh?